you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 11? Verse 23 will be our text this morning. As you look at this 11th chapter, you see several examples of those that lived faithfully through difficult circumstances. Many were enduring suffering in the Hebrew church, and so they needed before them an example of how to live faithfully through difficult times. And as you look at chapter 11, you'll notice there's at least, I believe, 18 times where a new person or a new situation is introduced by the words, by faith. Now, in the Greek New Testament, it's just one word. But in English, it's two, by faith. And then you see 18 times that there's that example. If you add the phrase, through faith, that gives us several other examples. And so this morning, we come to an example that introduces Moses. But as we see in verse 23, it's not referring to the faith of Moses, but rather to the faith of Moses' parents, which may, be a strange, may seem as a strange example of faith, considering what they do seems to be very natural and not an extraordinary example of faith. But as we look into the text, we will see that his parents do present an extraordinary example of faith. Let me read verse 23 for us. This is the word of God. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, as you read this, it, it, again, it, it may seem like a strange example to put forth as an example for us of how to live faithfully. And so we have to ask several questions. Why is this considered an act of faith when it's natural for parents to protect their children? Why is it mentioned that he is beautiful when parents would naturally assume their children are beautiful? Why is this set before the Hebrews and now before us as an example of faith? And another question we should ask before we approach this verse is how are we to be encouraged from this and what are we supposed to learn? Each of these sections in chapter 11, as I mentioned, that begins with by faith or when you see the, the phrase through faith, they're given as an example for us to follow, for us to be encouraged, for us to be edified, and for us to learn how to live. And so what is the historical context of verse 23 as now we move out of Genesis as the example and we move into the book of Exodus? The historical context for this expression of faith is seen in this as by faith Moses when he was born was hidden for three months. Now I assume that you're familiar with the story, but it would be good for us to turn to Exodus into chapter 1, 
and to deal with the historical context. And so while we see in verse 23, Moses is mentioned by name, it, it refers not to his faith, but his parents. His parents were Jochebed and Amram, the father. And this is referring to their faith. And why did the child need to be hid? Well, beginning in Exodus chapter 1, in verse 8, we read this, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Many historians believe that the, the Pharaoh and the people that were there in occupying Egypt during the time of Moses had been disposed by invading armies, and now there is a, a, a new group, a new leader in Egypt that is ruling G, uh, Egypt that does not know Joseph, so does not know of his stature, and does not know the family of Joseph, which has become a large people group after Joseph's death. And so verse 9, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities in Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now, we have to see in this text that the Israelites were under complete bondage and in completely enslaved to the Egyptians and to the Pharaoh. And when you think of, of the, the situation of a persecuted church today or persecution, note the elements that are present in the text. It says that the government dealt shrewdly with them, shrewdly with them, which was that of intentionally planning on how to deal with them. So what we read in just a couple of sentences uh, passes over this idea, but the Pharaoh is systematically seeking to oppress the Israelites. This is planning. You can think of his planning advisors and counselors coming together to think about how they can deal with with the Israelites to hurt them. It says that they had taskmasters over them to afflict them. So that required administration and appointments to have people with specific jobs. This was the, the purpose of to keep them down. They laid heavy burdens upon them. They oppressed them. And they caused them to ruthlessly work as slaves. And, and twice it says that, that their lives were bitter and with hard service. So that's the state of Israel in Egypt. In every way possible, the Pharaoh was intentional on making life difficult on the Jews, and the excessive work and the excessive ruthless way that they were working with them was actually to begin the systematic killing of the male population. So Pharaoh's intentions in verse 8 through verse 14 was to create a situation that would be so labor-intensive that it would eventually start to wipe out the male population. 
But contrary to the Pharaoh's plans, you see God's plans is that they continued to multiply even more and spread abroad, which tells us that the people of God did not ever lose hope, but continued to plant seeds here in this world. But then we come to verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whose name was Shiprah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. And now that word then is a reference to time. And verse 15 is a reference of time. The systematic plan to wipe out the Israelites was not working. And so the Pharaoh then comes up with a plan to ensure that he can begin to wipe them out. So that word then is a reference to time. He begins to take next measures to increase the rate of killing to ensure that he can wipe out the Israelites. And the specific command is for the midwives to kill male children. Let that sink in for a second. The Pharaoh is calling for these that would be there to deliver the child, when they see that the child is a male, that they are to actually murder the child. Now, it would only take a, a one generation to wipe out the majority of Israel if that was carried out. Let me just give you an example that's a modern-day example. In the 1970s, China implemented a population control by raising the age of legal marriage, so you, you could not get married until you reached a certain age, and then they limited childbirth to two children. And then later, they went to a one-child policy, which required forced abortions. Now, if you're studying what's taking place today in China, is this has been caused almost irreversible, disastrous effects for their economy. In fact, it, is, it has caused such great problems that they're in somewhat of a crisis because of this policy, because it, this depopulation ended up hurting them. And so we can see that it does not take long, even when you're allowed to have children, before that starts to negatively impact a society. But if they were to wipe out all male children, it would have wiped out the Israelites within a generation. And so, what you see here is the cruelty of Pharaoh, not only to call for the murder of all male babies, but at the same time he enslaved the parents and set them to cruel work. And you could understand how the population would decrease and eventually cease to exist. But we read of the heroes of this story here, of these midwives, in verse 17, it says, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Again, despite Pharaoh's attempts to wipe out the population, God had raised up these, these faithful women that refused to obey, 
murderous plans. They refuse to be obedient to these evil intentions of the Pharaoh and rather do their own thing. And I'm reminded of Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And so despite the intentional killing, despite the population control that Pharaoh was trying to exact, God had his plan to continue to grow his people. So the Pharaoh doesn't stop with the midwives, though. That's why in verse 22 we read the words, then again. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people. So this plan didn't work. This plan didn't work. This plan now is the plan that is going to ensure that he will wipe out the Israelites. Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. How was this legislated? How was this carried out? While, while we don't know exactly, we can imagine it had officials that were tasked over certain areas to ensure that if a child was born and it was a male child, that they would then, these officials, would take that child and cast them into the Nile. You know, this is over 4,000 years ago, and it, it seems to just be a reading of history of a tragic event, but I, I hope that when we read these words that we can visualize babies that were taken from their homes, that they were ripped from their parents' weeping hands and thrown into the Nile River which would then dispose of the babies and the parents would not even be able to have a proper burial or a time of mourning for the child. We should see it that way. How many children were murdered by Pharaoh? How much blood is on Pharaoh's hand that he will be eternally paying for? How many screaming parents had their babies ripped from their hands? How, how sick and twisted does a king have to be to kill babies in this manner? But that's exactly what we read. That's the situation that Amram and Jochebed found themselves in. And this was nothing less than an attempt, a satanic attempt, to wipe out the line of the Messiah. It's no difference that we see with the wicked Haman that planted, plant, plotted to have all the Jews murdered. It's the same plot of Athaliah to wipe out the line of Judah. It's the same wickedness of Herod that we see in the time of Christ. All an attempt to murder the chosen seed. And Satan wanted to destroy the line through which the Messiah would come. Satan still wants to murder children. Satanic influence still results in murdering of children today. Millions. Satan is a murderer. He hates the image of God and will do all that he can to remove that with every child that is conceived. I don't think we hate the murder of babies enough. I think that when we read this, it needs to stir up a righteous anger in us today. 
because we see today the satanic attempt to murder those that are conceived in the womb that are created in the image of God. I don't think I can say it strongly enough. We just do not hate abortion enough. We need to hate it with all that we have and stand for life. This was the situation of Moses' parents. This is why it sets the context that they had to hide this child. And it says that the first expression of their faith is that they hid this child for, for three months. Now, here's where we see their faith of Moses' parents. You might think this was just natural. This was just natural affection of all parents and is not necessarily a commendable thing of righteousness. It's not a commendable aspect of faith. Um, and it is true that parents want to, to protect their children. There is a natural affection that, that leads his parents to save him. And we have to see that that is a God-given interest. And we also have to see that natural affections that people have are often intertwined with God's will. But we also have to recognize that when our affections are not intertwined with God's will, we must abandon that which is natural to our desires and stand with God. You think of, for instance, in the example of Abraham, his natural desire was to protect his son Isaac, but God said, slaughter him. He abandoned his natural desires in favor of God's will. And so when our natural affections, our natural desires go against God's will, we must always go with God's will. But here we see that their natural desires of protecting their child were there. But we also have to recognize, especially in light of what I just said about abortion in America today, we have to note that despite the love of parents for their children, which is natural, we also see the opposite, don't we? We see the opposite with, where parents do not love their children but hate them and do wicked things to their children. We see abortions taking place constantly out of convenience, not because of a fear of death. If you put fear of death in people if they have children, how much more would those numbers increase? People are capable of all sorts of evil if they can perceive gain from it. This is why Paul told Timothy, money is the root of all evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. And people can be motivated to all sorts of wickedness, and fearing one's life is a good motivator to commit evil. If you do this, we'll let you live. And so we can't just simply brush this off as saying, well, of course their parents, they're going to protect their children, because actually what we observe in society and can observe throughout history is the opposite, where people will do wicked, horrible, unthinkable things for the sake of some kind of gain, and there's no greater gain than being able to live. So this is not merely just natural affection, because God's Word actually teaches us this is an act of faith. By faith, they hid their child, and it's commended to them by God that it was an act of faith. And this is also expressed in the, the phrase, they saw that the child was beautiful. 
That's almost an exact statement of what it says in Exodus. And in verse 2 of chapter 2, the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was fine, a fine child, she hid him for three months. There's a couple of things that you have to recognize. Despite the command to kill the children, despite the enslavement and the harsh condition that the Israelites were under, what were the Israelites still doing? Having children. And when this tribe of Levi, and the pure line of Levi here with Jochebed and Amram, are in this situation, not only do they have children, but they begin to protect the child. And there's a reason why it says that the child was fine in Exodus, but it says the child was beautiful. We should see those as synonymous phrases between Hebrews and Exodus. And you might think, well, of course, every, every parent and, and every grandparent thinks that their, their children or grandchildren are beautiful. No, no one sees a baby and says, oh, we, we always say, what a beautiful child. So why is this stated here? It's stated because there's something special and intentional that God is trying to point out to us about Moses. They, they saw something special by God's special revelation. How was that communicated to them? We don't know. Was there something special about Moses? You, you later think about how he had to conceal his face because it was glowing when he was in God's presence. We don't know, but there was something special that was revealed to his parents. Calvin even says this, some mark, as it were, of future excellency imprinted on the child, which gave promise of something extraordinary. And, and when you read many of the, the, the older commentators, they're, they're almost all in agreement that there was something special about Moses that, that leads to this, that we have to keep this child alive. And so what his parents saw is in this baby, they saw the future Redeemer. They saw the future that would be their, their advocate and would lead them, lead them out of bondage according to God's promise to Abraham. So whatever they were told by God, they were told that you must keep this child alive. He is going to be special. And, and certainly they're aware that our time in Egypt as slaves, according to God's word to Abraham, is only going to be a period of time. So they must have seen him as the deliverer. And the sight of Moses reminded them of the promise. It is by faith that they risk their life. It is by faith that they hide the child and trust in God. So in the birth of this child, they see that God is actually fulfilling his word and that an end to their suffering will be realized and deliverance will come from the baby that they're now hiding. When you follow the rest of the story, it's not for 80 years later. It's not for 80 years later. You know, when we're wanting things now in our instant time where we want instant gratification of things, we're in our microwave society where we can cook a meal in a matter of minutes. We want things now. Imagine that in this baby they 
and see 80 years the people of Israel languish in pain. Our timing and God's timing is not always the same, but by faith they looked to God's word and rested in the assurance of who God is and that he would deliver them through a mediator and that it would be this child. And so we read their second expression of faith, and we really read the power of their faith is that they feared not. They did not uh, fear the king's edict. And this is that expression, second expression of their faith. By not obeying the king's edict, there would certainly be repercussions for those that discarded his laws. And we have to recognize they are actually experiencing the height and fury of persecution. Why do I say that? Well, not only were they treated harshly, not only were they enslaved, but now they've moved into a, a period of persecution by command of the king that not only would be there be those that are policing the birth of children, but it's a call for neighbor to turn upon neighbor and for taskmasters to search homes and take children. You think of that slogan that came into our country after 9-11, see something, say something. What was the intention of that? That was for neighbor to watch on neighbor. And that's exactly what's taking place here, but, but in, in a very sick and twisted, sinister way. If you, if you see that there's someone pregnant, if you see that there's a child, this needs to be reported. And you can see how this takes place. You think of what was taking place in Nazi Germany with those that would have to hide children. And so this is what's taking place here is that they're calling, Pharaoh's calling for neighbor to turn on neighbor. And you could just imagine if there was maybe some little carrot in that idea of turning on my neighbor, maybe my work won't have to be as hard, or maybe that will lessen my persecution. Sure, I'll, I'll join with the Egyptians to tell of my neighbor who had a baby. When private homes are searched unlawfully by governments, you have reached the height of persecution. And that is certainly what's taking place here. And that must have cost a massive amount it required immense planning on the part of Pharaoh. It would require oversight to carry out such a command. You know bureaucracy. It's never simple. It's always inflated and it's always big. And that certainly would have been the same with Pharaoh. And all of this is done demonstrating the hatred that he had for the promised Messiah. So it's important that we feel the weight of what they were facing. It's, it's important that we understand what the circumstances they had because it says they were not afraid. Were they afraid of physical pain? Sure. Were they afraid of, of losing their child? Sure they were afraid. But what it's meaning when they were not afraid is that they had a greater fear of God. It means that they would rather trust God than fear man. They trusted God's word, despite the edict. That is a, a standing law or command that is instituted by the government. 
That's what an edict is. It's a law expressly that was given by the Pharaoh, by the king of Egypt, and this law expressly was against the promise that God had given. And we just have to pause and see it this way, is how did they view this? This is a command given by a king that goes against God's word. And specifically, this goes against God's promise. And so, when we think of them and their disobedience to the civil government, they were not only free to disobey, but they were required to disobey. In other words, when Amram and Jochebed are in this situation, facing a tyrannical government, it's not that they had a choice of whether to be obedient or not. Their command from God was to be obedient to God, and disobedient. Now, there's a couple of reasons why we should see, we must see it this way, is despite the Ten Commandments not yet being given, by the way, before the Ten Commandments are given in an official statement, you find all of the Ten Commandments present in Genesis before the giving of the Ten Commandments. And that's because we would say that's that natural law that God has imprinted upon every heart, but specifically that of murdering. God says this to Noah, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. God says, if you're, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. And so the idea of murder was out of the question. It could not be allowed. But there was also a further thing about this command that both Jochebed and Amram would have been familiar with and would have known from the preaching of their family members after generation and after generation is Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his hill. That was the promise of a Messiah. And now we know that the promise of the Messiah was not through the tribe of Levi. It would be through the tribe of Judah. But nonetheless, the Pharaoh's plan was not making distinctions among the tribes. It was to wipe out Israel. And so this plan was not only against God's natural law of murder and murdering of the children, but it was also a law that was expressly against the promise of God. Therefore, they were required to live disobedient lives to the Pharaoh. Now, this is a manifestation of a fear of God over a fear of man. This is why it's rightly says that by faith they did not fear. Now, I want you to think about their situation for a moment because it, it does bring up a couple of ethical questions that we should wrestle with. And this may make you uncomfortable, but that's okay. The the Word of God does. Was it right for the Israelites to be mistreated and enslaved because of dictatorial paranoia? The answer is no. What is dictatorial paranoia? Well, it's expressed in this, is that the, the king of Egypt looks out onto the people and says, the people of Israel are too mighty for us. 
If war breaks out, they may join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. The Pharaoh, in his mind, creates a hypothetical situation that could later harm his reign. It's not a something that's happened. It's hypothetical in his mind. That's what we call paranoia, and he's a dictatorial. He's a dictator, excuse me. So this is called dictatorial paranoia. You often see this in foreign countries today when you study the persecuted church, is that there will be dictatorial paranoia, which results in harsh treatment of certain segments of society. And so by way of a, of a hypothetical, he enslaves the people. He starts to, to not only enslave them, but then kill them. Was it right for the Israelites to be treated this way? The word is, the answer is no, it was not right, but I want you to notice something about it. They submit to it. Disobedience doesn't come until there's a requirement for murder. That's something for us to think about. What do they do when they're treated unfairly? Well, chapter 2, verse 23 says, During those days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. When they were mistreated, what did they do? They prayed. When a people of God are mistreated, what should they do? It should lead them to fervent prayer. But it's interesting that that did not lead them to rebellion. Being treated harshly, they accepted. You know, by the way, if, if, you, if you're familiar with the story of Esther, Esther, we see this, this very interesting line in Esther in chapter 7, in verse 3, where we read this, Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For Now listen, verse 4 is crucial. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed and killed and to be annihilated. This is why Esther goes to the king, is because they're going to be wiped out through murder. But then she goes on to say, if we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Isn't that interesting that that's where what drives Esther is the idea of murder, but being treated harshly did not lead her to go to the king on behalf of her people. Does this give us guidance? Does this help us to live through difficult times in this life. Let me ask another question. Does this encourage us to prayer? What would this have meant for those Hebrews that would have been reading of the story of Moses' parents? As the author of Hebrew gives them as an example of faith for those that are facing difficult times and facing persecution, that have come out of persecution, that were suffering for their faith, what would that have meant for them? Now this brings us to another question that has caused debate amongst commentators. Many older commentators say that the faith of Moses' parents was weak. 
Modern commentators say, no, it was strong. And so I asked, what was it, the faith of Moses' parents, weak or strong? And the reason this is asked is because they hid the child for three months and then put him in a basket. And you can just imagine why they hid him for three months. Well, at some point, the crying, you would not be able to control it and it would become known to all. And so if you had a special place in your home that you were hiding the child, eventually in that close-knit society, it would become known. You can also imagine that the, perhaps the Egyptians had sent out every three months for these villages to be checked or their, these areas to be checked and to see. So three months later, do they lose faith? Many of the older commentators say that. I don't think it's that simple. Because this is what we have to recognize, is the deliverance of Moses was not dependent on weak or strong faith. It was dependent upon the promise of God. And that's what we must understand from this. It wasn't dependent on the strength and the quality of their faith. And we have to see this also as, as Thomas Manton, the Puritan, says, His faith may trip, but it doth not fail totally. Those whom God calls will endure to the end. And God accepts our good and pardons our failings if we are in Christ. And why is it that it's not dependent upon a strong faith or a weak faith? It's because faith is a, a grace of God. It's not according to our own efforts that God fulfills His promises. Our salvation, our deliverance of sin is not dependent upon the quality of our faith. If it was, then salvation would then be according to our own efforts. If it was dependent upon the quality of our faith and how strong or how weak our faith, then we will have contributed something to the deliverance that we are promised in Christ. We can't get that mixed up. Salvation is by grace through faith. Faith is the vehicle through which the righteousness of Christ is imputed to the believer. Now, we must believe in order to be saved, but why do we believe? Why is it that one day you believed? It's because you responded to the preaching of the gospel at a certain point. Why versus rejecting it at another point? By grace. So must we believe? Yes, we must believe. And if you do not believe upon Christ, then Christ commands you, believe upon Him. No one is saved apart from faith, but no one has faith apart from grace. And why is that? Well, let me just ask you this simple question. Did Christ, the promised seed, fulfill the law in its totality, or is there something that Christ lacked, and that there was something insufficient of Christ's shed blood upon the cross and bearing the wrath of His people did Christ miss anything in that? If Christ missed something, that means that there's something then left for us to contribute. What does that say about the sufficiency of Christ? It wasn't fully sufficient to save. 
This is why we cannot see our salvation resting on the nature of our faith and how strong it is. Because the reality is this, is our faith is weak. This is why we're called to grow in faith. We're called to increase in our faith. But the reality is, is our faith is, is weak. It stumbles. It falters. It's attacked. But if we are covered in the blood of the Lamb, all of our sins and our weak faith is covered, and it will win the day. And so through faith, Amram and Jochebed, the parents of Moses, received the promise of a deliverer. And it wasn't dependent upon how great their faith was. We must be encouraged by this promise that our salvation is dependent not upon on how well we do, but our salvation is dependent upon God. And this we see in the story of Moses. It says in verse 3, and I think this bears it out, when she, could know, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. They followed through with what would seem like an insane plan to protect your child, to put him in a river in a little ark that was covered with pitch. But yet that's what they do, trusting in the Lord, trusting that God would protect the child. And they are commended that this was all done by faith. As we look at them, we see that their faith was manifested in two ways. The first was hiding the child and the second was fearing not Pharaoh's law. And so what do we see about faith? Faith produced works. Their faith manifested itself in something tangible. That despite what was going on, that they would still be faithful. That's something that was noticeable. That was something that was observable. And so the outward act, let's just call it fruit, the outward act did not earn favor with God, but came as a result of God's grace in their life. It came through faith. And we have to understand something about how faith manifests itself. Good fruit does not make the tree good. Good fruit does not make the tree good. Rather, a good tree produces good fruit. And so what we have to understand is something about that is that a good tree produces good fruit because it's good. Why is something good? Well, by grace through faith and the promise of God to send a deliverer, Moses' parents were declared righteous. They were good trees that produced good fruit. And this same truth is emphasized through this story given to the Hebrews. Because these Hebrews were in a crisis of faith. 
or a possibly approaching crisis. They, they were, again, they were dealing with persecution. And so the parents of Moses are put before them as a faithful couple, united. I think that we have to see that in, in the, the Exodus account. We only see Jochebed, the mother of Moses. But in Hebrews, it tells us the parents were united. Mother and father are united in their faithfulness to God in protecting this child. They were united in their decision to go against Pharaoh. They were united in their decision of having, of, to fear God over man. And the Hebrews are reminded that God saves and fulfills His promises as they, they face difficult times. They are reminded to stay faithful. The Puritan John Trapp in his commentary says, Better obey God with whom we must ever live than men with whom we have but a little while to continue. What a great thought, isn't it? We'll spend all eternity with God. But with man we spend just about a time. Let me ask you as we close this out, how, how does this story stir you this morning to obedience? How does the promises of God give us hope in whatever we're facing at this moment? Whatever it may be in your life that you're facing, how does this story give you hope to live by faith? How does God's word fill your heart with joy and peace even in suffering? How do people exercise faith in suffering? How do people exercise faith in, in persecution? You know, let us, like Amram and Jochebed, turn our eyes to the promise of the Messiah and fix our gaze upon the promise as we walk through our pilgrimage in this life, knowing that it could be tomorrow that the blessed return of Christ comes, or it could be 80 years or 800 years. We set our eyes upon Him and the promise that He will return soon. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your promises. We know they are tried and true. We know that your promises come from you, our one true and living God who is truth, that in you there is no falsity, but only truth. I pray that, Father, by your grace, we would set our eyes and fix our eyes upon your word as a comfort and a means even of contentment as we face various trials through our life. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.